Welcome to the Meaning of Life, where philosophy gets personal. This podcast is a series of conversations between Dr. Susie Ferrarello and philosophers from around the world, exploring the ever-persistent question of what is the meaning of life, from an intimately personal perspective amongst other topics in philosophy. Our host, Dr. Ferrarello, received her PhD in philosophy from the Sorbonne University in Paris. She is an expert in phenomenology, ethics, moral psychology, and ancient and contemporary philosophy. Dr. Ferrarello is currently a professor of philosophy at California State University, East Bay, and she is also a philosophical counselor. So, uh, good morning to Valeria Bizzarri. Uh, today we have uh, this great honor of uh, uh, talking and interviewing uh, um, Dr. Bizzarri about uh, her work as a philosopher and uh, I would say mental care expert because you invested a long time in taking care of the way in which we can take care of uh, mental health issues. Um, before asking uh, you some questions, I will uh, briefly introduce you. Uh, so Dr. Bizzari currently works uh, at the Husserl's Archive uh, in Leuven, in Belgium. Uh, this is a great position uh, because, uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh, these archives are uh, a very lively center in which scholars can do research, especially on Husserl phenomenology. And Dr. Bizzari will explain us what is phenomenology and uh, what do we do with it. Um, her research, in fact, is very much focused on uh, phenomenology, philosophy of emotions, uh, psychopathology. Uh, she has even worked at the University of uh, Heidelberg um, with a project on uh, Asperger syndrome. And uh, she focused on uh, empirical, in uh, empirical investigations of uh, intersubjectivity and uh, its disruptions. Um, so I would like to, to start uh, by asking you, how do we link psychopathology and philosophy? Uh, how can philosophy help with uh, psychiatric uh, problems? Uh, a quick introductory question reading your bio. Uh, what do we do with philosophy when uh, we talk about psychiatric illnesses? Yeah, first of all, thanks a lot for the invitation. I'm very honored to be to be here. For me, it's a, it's a real pleasure. And it's also the, an opportunity of self-reflection somehow. Uh, your question is a big question, and uh, it's also what I asked myself <laughs> the very first time uh, I tried to handle with uh, psychopathology, but especially the very first time uh, I entered the psychiatric hospital. So I have to admit that uh, um, when I entered for the first time at psychiatric hospital because of my work, uh, it was the last year of my PhD, mm -hmm. which is uh, five years ago. Mm -hmm. That it's not so much time ago, but it seems alive to me because in the meantime, I have changed three countries and three jobs. Okay. So it's, uh, it's also quite emotional for me to recollect that, that uh, time. So I was uh, basically, I was curious about uh, intersubjectivity and I worked a, a lot on uh, emotion, as you said. So philosophy of emotions, but from uh, a purely, you know, theoretical perspective. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, uh, the way uh, we engage with others, mm -hmm. both from uh, a practical uh, perspective, but also uh, from... Uh, um, yeah, a deeper perspective as to say what is the role of, of others uh, in respect mm -hmm. to the, the development of our own self, for instance. And mm -hmm. this is the reason why I ask myself, okay, what does it mean? What does it happen when the, our emotional life is somehow disrupted? When mm -hmm. emotions are overwhelming, for instance, mm -hmm. or not? So I, I was very lucky because I had this opportunity to spend the last month of my PhD in uh, a research center at psychiatric hospital close to Pisa, oh. Stella Maris uh, Institute. Uh, 
that is uh, a very important center for the study uh, of autism. So it was also by a coincidence that I had started mm. to uh, study autism. And uh, so I, I never met anybody, you know, with uh, a diagnosis. Oh. And uh, yeah, and the very first time I was there, okay, I told myself, okay, everything I studied is completely useless. I am. Oh. Completely... <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I think that uh, it, it was the first weekend uh, sometime to remain uh, enclosed in our tower of uh, mm -hmm. thinking and uh, to, yeah, to ruminate, uh, uh, to speculate a lot about uh, important uh, notions, uh, important mm -hmm. uh, moral theories or uh, metaphysical experiments. Uh, and the risk, of course, is to forget concrete, the real life. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have to say that uh, I almost immediately changed my mind mm. because of a meeting. And again, we come back to the theme of intersubjectivity and how intersubjectivity oh. in a way also shapes our own identity and our uh -huh. own life because uh, uh, I followed for three months uh, this guy uh, with a diagnosis of uh, high functioning autism he said mm -hmm. diagnosed himself at that time mm -hmm. and uh, I had the opportunity to talk a lot to him and uh, he, he is a wonderful person and so funny. And I learned a lot from him. Uh, and at the end of my internship, so to say, uh, I had developed my very first qualitative interview. But what is uh, a qualitative interview? Yeah, it's uh, a questionnaire, but it's uh -huh. not uh, a statistic one, so to say, it's an open uh, qu uh, questionnaire, which is uh, aimed to, in my case, uh, to analyze uh, the structure of subjectivity that are in, uh, in temporality, corporeality, social capacities. Uh, but I have to, and usually I, I use me, but also very famous colleagues uh, like partners and so on. Yeah. Uh, usually uh, we use uh, open questions. So the main mm -hmm. aim is to let the interviewee um, like, uh, you know, speak freely about uh, herself, which is the main important aim. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that case, uh, I was, you know, still, uh, <laughs> Uh, at the very stage of my research and uh, I needed uh, help, so I used pictures. So I used pictures in order to ask questions about specific topics like uh, social uh, needs, uh, um, corporeal awareness, uh, and so on. And uh, at the end of the interview, I asked Matteo which one is its favorite pictures. And uh, he told me that his favorite was uh, the one uh, with the sea, mm. because uh, in his view, the sea is a concept. Oh. Yeah, okay. and for me, I think that this uh, was, uh, yeah, the, the main, uh, uh, yeah, the main important thing that I learned, uh, because I learned that why not the sea can also be a concept uh, that diversity is uh, a richness, can be also a richness. And on the other hand, uh, philosophy can represent a powerful tool to understand the complexity of uh, life, uh, of human being, and also to deal with such a complexity. So in order to answer your initial question, I think that philosophy has the tools to overcome labels that in mental health play, unfortunately, a strong role and, and has also the, the, the power to account for the different nuances of uh, our uh, vulnerability of our uh, fragility, but also of our richness as a human being. Phenomenology in this sense uh, is also important because uh, uh, according to phenomenology, we are all uh, unique individuals and we are all different. 
And I think that this is also something that can contribute to uh, a better understanding of uh, mental disorders. Thanks, Valeria. This story is really beautiful. Uh, I would like to say a little bit more here because I, I imagine you, you are, uh, you know, uh, at the end, uh, more or less at the end of your PhD. And uh, we all know more or less that the PhD is a very scary <laughs> experience of our lives where we have to prove that uh, we can do research and uh, mostly we actually don't know what we are researching, right? <laughs> the research is exactly this mare magnum of possibilities. And uh, you interview uh, and, and you are studying autism. I don't know if you have your own definition of autism you would like to share. And you are a phenomenologist. Mm. Uh, what does, so you are a philosopher, but in particular a phenomenologist. So I'd be curious to know what uh, what what phenomenology implies for you, what it means for you. And you have in front of yourself uh, a living person. So finally, not just a book, but is a living human being uh, that is showing you uh, what the experience of uh, having autism, being autistic, uh, means for him. Uh, and it tells you that the C is a concept. Uh, so I would like us to stay a little bit more on this moment. How did phenomenology help you in this? How did you feel? What did that mean for you? Did this answer change anything about the definition of autism that you read in the books, in the DSM and so on? Yes, of course. So. Uh, firstly, I mean, for me, uh, phenomenology is uh, mostly the study of uh, our experience. And uh, in my view, this is the reason why it's so obvious that uh, phenomenology uh, is interested uh, in other disciplines uh, like uh, psychopathology. So for me, uh, it was uh, it has always been something uh, quite dogmatic in my view. And uh, I also think that uh, phenomenology provides us with a meter that allows us to um, to go deeper into the subjective structure. So, you know, like to, to bracket in all of the other assumptions uh, and to go and grasping the essence of uh, subjectivity and or of the experience uh, is something really powerful, but also really concrete at the same time. And uh, yeah, of course, uh, I, I think that uh, that specific meeting changed a lot uh, in my in myself also maybe if I hadn't met uh, uh, Matteo and his you know his, his, his richness because he also writes poems that are oh. wonderful oh. Um, I would never uh, pursue this uh, specific, you know, study, like uh, the study on high functioning autism. It happened to me many times that people ask me, for instance, at conferences and so on, why did you choose exactly high functioning right. autism? So right. I, I think that, uh, yeah, this uh, experience uh, did influence me a lot, but there is also a methodological reason, a theoretical reason. I, I did choose this specific disorder uh, because uh, uh, as phenomenologists, we can observe uh, a pure uh, intersubjective uh, disorder because uh, uh, unlike uh, uh, low functioning, and I, I also wanted to, uh, to make a point, I don't like the distinction between low functioning, high functioning. I it's uh, you know for uh, for practical reason that I use these uh, labels, uh, but of course it's a spectrum and it's uh, it's not only it's not a pathology, of course. Uh, but it's interesting from a phenomenological perspective because uh, they have only that kind of disturbance the disturbance of intersubjectivity and that's it because from a uh, motor and cognitive perspective they are more than efficient mm -hmm. so it's really fascinating and yes also my definition so to say my view about autism did change a lot uh, 
Firstly, because uh, in any case, uh, uh, there are many definitions of autism and uh, uh, the, the problem that I faced when I started uh, studying this topic uh, was that they are, there are many of them. And there are divided uh, between uh, neurobiological explanation, poor reductionist explanations and behavioral ones. And, uh, and from a philosophical perspective, this is a huge gap that I wanted to, to fill somehow. Uh, they all use a very broad definition of intersubjectivity and of empathy in particular. And I also found them uh, quite stigmatizing and uh, very poorly inclusive because uh, there is one of the most famous that is the male brain hypothesis according to which autism is a typical male problem. But this is absolutely false because uh, there are many girls uh, that yeah. are that, that, and this is another problem related to this kind of theories, uh, are usually labeled as uh, um, girls with uh, eating disorder. Because if you are a girl and you have uh, intersubjective disorders, okay, you, you cannot have autism because it's a main problem. You uh, probably are anorexic for instance. So I also wanted to, to include in my interview uh, female subjects. Yeah. So yeah, the definition also changed a lot, especially thanks to, to Matteo again, because he also used another wonderful expressions that I used for the title of my very first paper on autism, that is uh, uh, a spontaneous transgressive. It <laughs> It feels like a spontaneous transgressive. <laughs> and I, I think it's wonderful. <laughs> I agree. It sounds really good. It's yeah. a beautiful definition. Uh-huh. That's amazing. Thank you, Valeria. I mean, I'm still thinking of the C's concept uh, is so yeah. poetic because it means that for him, uh, the C is not a play. I, I don't know. I, I launch myself into interpretations, maybe. But the C is not a place uh, of intersubjectivity again. I mean, it's not a place that stands for me and other persons uh, and uh, we produce uh, we life uh, and activities there. I don't know, saying that the sea is a concept um, puts this place uh, in an area that is uh, unchanging, abstracts, uh, incapable of you know producing meanings but nevertheless is there available for him i mean uh, speaking of intersubjectivity as a way of relating with each other an answer like that is really powerful and uh, i do enjoy the gap that you are trying to fill uh, in um, you know, uh, uh, to overcome and trying to define autism, not just as uh, behavioral or only as a uh, uh, biological, neurobiological problem. And uh, yeah, uh, emphasizing instead the role of intersubjectivity. Uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, I, I found, I recently found another nice definition in a book yes. that been published uh, this year, and that is um, authored by an autistic subject, uh, Eric Garcia. Uh, the book is called uh, We Are Not Broken. Wow, and uh, in the preface, uh, he describes autistic people as uh, people uh, who are uh, trying to navigate uh, a, a world, uh, a world where the, the sign words uh, are written in a language that uh, cannot, they cannot understand. Wow. And this was really uh, important for me because it reminds me of uh, another author that, and another person that plays an important role in my, in my research, that is George Frankler. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, because uh, I think that uh, his definition of autism is really revolutionary somehow, mm. but uh, for historical and political reason, uh, the, um, it remained uh, hidden and uh, in, in the, it seems to me that it reminds uh, these words uh, and this language problem because uh, while uh, um, for instance Scanner talk about, uh, talks about uh, neurobiological disturbances, Asperger's talks in terms of autistic psychopaths, so behavioral disturbances, uh, 
In the same year, because uh, he worked both with Asperger and then because uh, he was Jewish, he has to escape to Maryland uh, where he had the opportunity to work with Kanner, so a very interesting link. Uh, he uh, was claiming that uh, the problem in uh, high-functioning autistic people is a problem of language. Uh -huh. And this is revolutionary because in the manuscript that, that is not published, because I suppose his, uh, his PhD dissertation that uh, he, he never finished. Uh, many of us. <laughs> in, uh, in this manuscript, uh, he hypothesized a lot of compensatory language, and he claims that it's up to the caregivers in particular, but mm. in any case, it's up to us, to the people that surround uh, the autistic person, to um, basically to uh, adopt the compensatory language of the autistic person and to adapt to them. So it's not, you know, it's not the idea uh, of, okay, the autistic person that is not able to do with the society, and this is a problem. It's the opposite. We all have different kinds of expressing ourselves and our emotions, and uh, uh, autistic people have problem with what he called affective language and accordingly affective content. And uh, for this reason, it's up to us to understand this different kind of language and, and to face with it and to cope with it. It's a, a revolution in my view. And it's, it's also nice, yeah, because uh, it's, uh, he describes uh, language in different uh, manners. Uh, to summarize, uh, he, according to him, there are two kinds of language, word language that comprises all verbal communicative uh, symbols. And in this language is uh, something that uh, uh, I function in autistic subjects can deal with very easily also. Mm. And then there is affective language. Affective language comprises all non-verbal communicative symbols uh, like expressive gestures, uh, uh, affectivity, intercorporeality, and in my view, these notions uh, corresponds perfectly to the phenomenological notions of intercorporeality. Mm -hmm. Also because, uh, according to Frankl, the affective language is necessary for the arising of what he calls affective contact, that is interaffectivity, so our ability to be spontaneously engaged with others. So in his view, the problems uh, in uh, high-functioning autistic subjects is a problem in affective language, so only in the language, it's a very important notice, and accordingly to affective contact. Mm -hmm. So if we manage to uh, coordinate, to synchronize ourselves with their affective language that is different from ours, we can restore uh, also the affective contact because uh, they, they need affective contact like yeah. each of us. Of course. So I, I found really important this uh, contribution. And I know that you translated uh, uh, his work, part of his yeah his work in Italian, which is a uh, which is, uh, gives some justice uh, to. Yeah, even though you know in, it's, uh, it's not enough because uh, <laughs> I don't think that many people bought that book. But it was also very funny because uh, I Frank you cannot find Frank's no. work or a comment on it online. I again uh, the psychiatrist who uh, I had the opportunity to, to work with in Pisa uh, told me, no, do, do, have you read uh, these uh, recent books uh, where, that were uh, in a different key and neurotypes uh, mm. where uh, uh, Franklin was mentioned? And he told me, no, it could be interesting to find out something more about him. So I had started a sort of Indiana Jones work. <laughs> of course. <laughs> And I try, you know, to follow his steps. Mm -hmm. but, 
and I also discovered a, a very, a very nice uh, romantic story behind him. Because, Tell us. Yes, he had to escape to, to the USA because he was Jewish. But in that occasion, he also had the opportunity to meet again uh, Annie Weiss, who was a psychologist who worked in Vienna uh, with him and Asperger, also in her case. Uh -huh. And uh, they met after three years and they got married. Oh, so oh, at least I also read a very, a very nice story behind his uh -huh. life. Yeah. But in practical, I was bounced from one university to another because no one could tell me something more about him. And mm -hmm. at the end, I finally, I managed to write to the, to the University of Kansas, mm -hmm. which is the last university where he worked. And they told me that they had this manuscript in their library, the Spencer Library. Ah, they had this super uh -huh. kind and they sent it to me. And uh, I, I, it was a huge discovery for me as a feminologist uh, because it, it could be anything it could be a paper it could be very clinical but uh, no, it was a big surprise so we hope uh, you'll uh, be able to translate it in english soon also <laughs> not just uh, in italian <laughs> let's hope <laughs> so uh, it's uh, the work of uh, george frankel just to because we have also the other famous more famous uh, uh, victor yeah. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned the importance of affective language, which is the language through which we built a spontaneous um, uh, connections yeah. with each other. I wonder if you ever found yourself in a situation in which uh, you would have liked, you, you wished uh, to connect with somebody who had problems with this language uh, and you were at loss for uh, answers, so you had to try to find a way to build this language. Uh, what kind of um, personal advice besides the uh, academic uh, scholarly ones that you can give us? Well, uh, yes, I did. Uh -huh. And uh, I, I found out that uh, uh, I am quite good in uh, tune in uh, with uh, many different kinds of affective language. So uh, the story after Calambrone uh, proceeded towards this direction because I, once I, I, I met Matteo, uh, I realized that uh, uh, combining my philosophical uh, study with this kind uh, of um, experience uh, was uh, what I wanted to do, so to say. So I, I kept on trying you know, to develop interviews and to understand the sociality from different perspectives. So I, I, I had the opportunity to interview other people, also schizophrenic people. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it was quite difficult. I have to admit that it was quite difficult. Uh, and then I ended up working uh, in a research center within a psychiatric hospital. Uh, more specifically, in Heidelberg, uh, the research center is uh, within a station where there are uh, depressed patients. So I, I found myself very often in uh, yeah, this... Uh, um, peculiar atmospheres, so to say. And uh, yeah, the, 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 the main important ones for me were uh, when I did uh, um, music therapy together with patients. Ah, yeah, I wanted to get there too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, because uh, together with a colleague uh, from Pharma, we wanted to uh, understand uh, sociality, but uh, mostly that specific occasion, intercorporeality, mm -hmm. when uh, we had the task of doing one thing together. So mm -hmm. here in that specific occasion, uh, the domain was, you know, collective intentionality. So um, all that part of uh, our emotional life that involves uh, more than, than, than two person and also a common goal that we have to share together. So we ask ourselves, okay, what does it happen uh, 
uh, if uh, uh, persons who have uh, different affective language, we can mm -hmm. uh, speak in this term, um, have to deal with the shared task, a task that requires our pre-reflective abilities, like right. music. Um. And uh, in order to, uh, to do this kind of study, we spent one year in this lab and we attended all the music therapy sessions. And of course, in order not to corrupt the answers of the interviewees, we didn't tell them that we were philosophers, but mm -hmm. we were just musicians for them. Why not? And so we had free therapy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good well, deal to cut. Yeah, a lot of fun. And we also had the opportunity to really know these, uh, these persons. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I found myself sometimes in the situation you described. And uh, yeah, in a very practical uh, manner, I think that, uh, that I just reply with the or just uh, hanging uh, uh, the hand of the other and uh, mm. one day a, a person uh, uh, kept my hand for the entire way they put the <laughs> and they shut up for the entire day but it, it seemed to be very comfortable you know uh -huh. just to be close right so, yeah because there's some kind of myth around autism that uh, you don't have to touch them uh, to create a close contact. Uh, uh, so you are telling us that it's a no, myth. no, no. I, I, for the majority mm -hmm. of the cases, this is mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, I think that they also have uh, uh, the need of the. Uh, corporeal other so to say let's think about uh, the hugs uh, machine uh, there is a, a very famous uh, uh, eye functioning autistic subject who built uh, the hugs machine so when she feels the need she feels the desire to be hugged someone she uses this uh, machine because she can also you know con have, con have control on the others mm -hmm. so to say Mm -hmm. So there is a still the need for the other. The problem is that this it's uh, it's very difficult to uh, uh, spontaneously tune in with mm -hmm. the, the other. So this is the, the main problem. Again, it's a problem of language. It's a problem of uh, yeah being different from what is considered normal, but. Uh, and this is with the patients. So you described your interactions with a patient's clients. So there's always a, a little bit of a professional role. Yeah, even though in that case, in that specific case, in the case of music therapy, there were no, you know, there were, there were, there was no hierarchy at all. No, 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 not at all. Not emotional roles. Yeah, yeah, friends, yeah. Uh, family, uh, have you ever experienced uh, uh, to have to learn how to generate yes, uh, this affective language continuously? Yes, continuously, because I think that in any case, uh, and this is something that probably uh, my research part uh, taught me uh, we are all fragile we have uh, all our vulnerabilities and uh, we all need uh, different uh, uh, kinds of attention so to say and uh, yeah I, I, <laughs> I am also usually uh, people around me uh, use use me so to say <laughs> to, you know, to, to tell me about uh, the problems and so on. And I think that this happens because uh, I have learned to, to uh, not be judgmental. I don't have a judgmental attitude. Uh, so I, I, I make them feel comfortable somehow, or at least I hope. It seems so. <laughs> It seems so. I mean, did you learn it in your personal life and then philosophy helped you to refine it? Or did you learn it to philosophy and then this made it better in your personal life? What was the rule? I, I think that philosophy played play a great role in shaping mm. my personal identity. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, especially the subjects that uh, the topics that I study, uh, I mean, I also for myself development as well. I I I'm still learning to listen to myself, uh, to my emotions, uh, to mm-hmm. be self-aware and more present uh, to the situations that happen to me. And uh, yeah, I guess phenomenology provides us with a powerful tool like the okay? Sometimes I try, when I am in a difficult situation, I stop mm-hmm. and I try, you know, to suspend all uh, the unnecessary judgment. And I try to, to go to the uh, essence of the problem, even though it's, uh, it's really complicated. I know. <laughs> but I also, I also think that uh, uh, somehow philosophy allowed us to, uh, and here I am going to use uh, Husserl's words, uh, to navigate uh, to the world, to the sea of suffering. I am reading The Grand Probleme, which is amazing in my view, it's wonderful Husserl that we can read, and uh, in a wonderful passage that in my view is uh, super poetic, uh, he says that uh, we are veiled and clocked with the sea of suffering. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is it, also quite far away from uh, if we think about the first whistle. So oh, yeah. it's not uh, all about the, this pure transcendental subject, but this pure transcendental subject is uh, deeply immersed into, facti- into, facti- into facticity and uh, into mm-hmm. vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think, uh, or at least I'm trying to uh, learn and to cope with. Uh, vulnerability and the complexity of existence and I think that philosophy is a great help Uh, and speaking of which uh, uh, you mentioned at the very beginning uh, that you had to change uh, uh, your home your geographical home plenty of times and yeah this is part of uh, being a scholar so if you love to travel uh, just try to take this uh, academic career uh, have you have you experienced often uh, or more or less often the feeling of having to start from scratch over and over again uh, having to cope with this vulnerability in uh, you know in uh, the effort of starting from scratch or can you yeah. share with us uh, yeah. a, a personal moment in which you had to restart your life how that it felt Yes, of course, of course, uh, and this happened uh, also very recently because uh, exactly one year ago I had to move from Heidelberg to Leven and it was uh, what Jaspers would have called a leap for me. So, yeah, because uh, Heidelberg even though uh, I, I come from Tuscany, I come from Italy, I love Italy, and of course... Uh, You're not I, alone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I found in Heidelberg my, my home mm-hmm. and my, my place in the world, so to say, probably because uh, it's where I had the opportunity to start my own research project and uh, mm-hmm. it's wonderful and the, the, also the recent environment was amazing. I had an amazing supervisor. So it, yeah, I, I spent uh, uh, three amazing years there. And for me, it was uh, super difficult to choose to mm-hmm. Uh, interrupt my contract. Uh, ah, you interrupted the contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I would have finished now in mm-hmm. September 2021. So this is the main reason why. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it was less difficult because I had one year left, but still yes. one year. Uh-huh. And then okay, I went here alone in the middle of the pandemic in the so, middle of the pandemic uh, easy, right yeah so i moved my 
my apartment, five boxes <laughs> from Germany to, to Leven, and I arrived the exact week when the Belgian lockdown started. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. And the Belgian lockdown uh, lasted nine months. And you were all alone. And I was alone in this empty apartment because uh, I finally I have my own apartment and I can uh, you know, <laughs> decorate it uh, as I want. Uh, but I was completely alone with this empty apartment with the eco because... <laughs> Yeah, because you couldn't even put furniture because everything was closed. No, luckily so. there, there was one sofa, so I, I slept okay. for a couple of weeks. And uh, everything was closed. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't know the city because I went here only once for the interview, so I didn't visit the city. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I didn't meet my colleagues. Yeah, so I met them only through Zoom, but you know it's not the same. We still need intercorporeality. Absolutely. And, and uh, yeah, it it was very challenging very very challenging but I find out my my third love after phenomenology and psychopathology that is carpentry because, <laughs> because I had a lot of uh, it was also a big surprise because I am the clumsiest person in the world but I found that I, I found out that I'm very good in uh, you know assembling furniture so I spent mm -hmm. Yeah, I reinvented, I make up again myself, uh, uh, assembling furniture and painting furniture and, uh, and trying to make this place as comfortable as possible. What was the feeling uh, that was more difficult to handle with uh, during this time of restart in the middle of a pandemic nothingness? Yeah, the, firstly, loneliness, mm -hmm. because of course I was far away from uh, my dear ones uh, and uh, I, I didn't know when I could have had the opportunity to come back to Italy again. So mm -hmm. I felt uh, completely alone and here I didn't know basically anyone. So it was a very strong feeling of loneliness. And uh, on the other hand, also the, the fact that uh, I had started the sort of blind path because okay, mm -hmm. here it's a beautiful place. I'm very grateful. I'm very happy about it. But uh, who knows? You know, I, I don't have the chance to go to my office to meet my new colleagues uh, to actually see how this uh, new job works concretely. Mm -hmm. So I was mm -hmm. a little bit dis disoriented. The, the right word uh, is disoriented. How did you cope with that? Did you did you have uh, a aha moment at some point that allowed you to understand? Okay, uh, this is the way. Well, I again, I, I am using again Jasper's expression because yes. uh, uh, Jasper uh, uh, claims that we need to to face. Uh, uh, breaking situation, liminal situation, because it's through them, it's through the break that uh, we found the meaning of existence. Yes. In German he uses the expression Durkbruch, so through the break. Mm -hmm. So there has been no haha moment, uh, but I think that I just went through the break. <laughs> and uh, I, I remember that at a certain point uh, I I looked around and I saw a nice apartment. Mm -hmm. uh, my books arrived and I and yeah, yeah, and I realized okay, I'm I'm here, I am alone, but I managed to do uh, to move along uh, to cope with the furniture alone, which seems to be stupid, but it's not. No, <laughs> stupid, I know. Especially with IKEA furniture, and uh, yeah, I I'm still here, and uh, I feel very good. Yeah. And in, I mean, in the dream place for phenomenologists. So yeah. yeah. And we say a warm hello to Thomas Fuchs, your supervisor, who is an amazing teacher, professor, scholar. Yeah, yeah you yeah. you were formed by the best. Yeah, yeah, I, I was super lucky, both from yeah. an academic perspective, but also from a human perspective. Human perspective. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
And look, how do you think people view you? Because, you know, you, you traveled a lot, you met um, with uh, different kind of people, academics, uh, uh, clinical uh, um, patients, uh, uh, your family, why not? I mean, your friends. How do you think people uh, view you? Well, it depends. I mean, I think that for uh, people that uh, uh, do not belong to academia, it's mm -hmm. uh, quite difficult to understand uh, what I do and why. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know the feeling. Yeah, I know that you understand. And uh, yeah, so... Yeah, it's, uh, it has been, especially at the very beginning, when uh, I was doing my PhD, but also after my PhD, when I decided to, pro yeah, to, to proceed with the academic career, it was uh, very difficult to, to make myself uh, feel understood. I know. Uh -huh. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, because I mean, uh, let's contextualize a little bit. Right. I came from a very small village in the middle of nowhere. And uh, it? uh, it's, uh, it's called Graniola. Oh, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, in Tuscany, uh -huh. one hour uh, to Pisa. Uh -huh. And uh, yeah, also my, my parents uh, didn't have study and uh, they, it's very difficult. It has been quite difficult for them for, to figure it out that uh, uh, I wasn't uh, losing my time, but I was pursuing something uh, beautiful for myself and also job speaking, so to say. So, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> because uh, I think that for some people, I am the always Erasmus girl. <laughs> <laughs> So you are in an ongoing so, yeah, Erasmus. It's, 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 it's not, yeah. I think that being an academic and being an academic that does philosophy, yeah. it's not conceived as a real job. Not at all. At least not in Italy, sorry. To at say. least not mm -hmm. in Italy. Mm -hmm. So also my friends and so on ask me a lot of time why are you doing this why you don't want to find a normal job <laughs> but it's uh, it's what i am i think that it's what i am of course uh, I, i i come also from a very uh, modest family so i couldn't do philosophy you know just for pleasure of course uh, i am sure that uh, uh, i will keep on uh, uh, doing philosophy for my pleasure but I also have a plan B and C because I have always had to work and I also did many different uh, jobs before of, uh, of uh, academia and uh, what did and, you do what's your array yeah. of jobs <laughs> as a philosopher yeah. besides yeah. philosophy yeah you cannot imagine how, how oh, yeah. we are as a philosopher so I, I i even did i even work in public relation uh, in uh, for uh, for uh, a couple of for some years and uh, uh, i also went to some events uh, uh, and i also uh, did the, the guide the museum guide at the printing museum mm. it was very nice It was very nice. And at the tourism office uh, during the summer, so I prepared my uh, exams uh, while I was working. Uh, it was, uh, and then I, the, the last year of my PhD, I also taught in a private uh, high school. Oh, sweet. Humanities in general, so, so you know, Latin, Greek. Uh, And yeah, it was, uh, it was nice. I mean, and then uh, your parents could understand what you were doing. I mean, as far as you do philosophy and you are yourself, uh, okay, it's a little bit hazy. Yeah. But if you are a teacher in high school, then the role is clear, right? Yes, of course, of course. And this is the reason why I am also enrolled also, also now in mm. the uh, Italian high school system, of course. Ah, uh, yeah, I have too. never... Uh, taught because uh, I 
I had the lucky to start immediately my academic career that, uh, and, to, and kept on on that direction. But of course, uh, I, I mean, for me, it's not a mission. It's, uh, I, I, I know because I did that I can also do something else, but it's, uh, yeah, as I said, it's something that really shaped my identity as, as far as I, as I can, I want to, to be loyal to myself. That's very important. Yeah, I think this is the, the main achievement. But also, of course, uh, then, of course, with, uh, with time and my parents and also my dear ones uh, uh, tried to, to understand and they are very proud and they accept me as I am. But I think that uh, this is... Uh, <laughs> The, another important uh, achievement, uh, but uh, uh, it's not easy to be a younger girl uh, in in academic and to you know to be uh, very convinced in pursuing this uh, this path. Yeah, so, you know to understand that your vocation is to break intellectual categories in concrete life. Because, I mean, you came to this world to do your part in breaking all categories concerning autism and helping autism to become what it is. So your loyalty to yourself is also the loyalty to a social cause. And, you know, understanding that for yourself is already an enterprise, but making uh, understand others, this uh, Yeah. So you are, uh, this is funny, you are the Erasmus girl, more or less, the people view you yeah. as the Erasmus. But it's, it's also nice, you know, because it's true that we travel a lot and it's something that it's true. Uh, I yeah. really love, I really love, I love being tired because I have to, I have to run for my next flight and yeah, and jump I from know. one That's to another, yeah. It's, uh, I really enjoy this, uh, this lifestyle, so to say. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the, a beautiful part of it. Uh, I, I agree with you. I like it uh, very much also. Look, and the, what makes you feel valued? Uh, I mean, since uh, there's some kind of blindness uh, around uh, all the efforts uh, you put uh, in the world uh, to do your part uh, for the society, uh, where do you gain uh, your sense of value? What makes you feel valued? Well, very, in a very basic manner, already the fact that I managed to be somehow loyal to myself mm -hmm. and to my dreams is something that uh, it's, uh, it's uh, really important to me. Mm -hmm. So I'm here, yes, it's, I have my dear one uh, far away, it's quite difficult, but uh, yeah. I'm doing what is right uh, for myself, so to say. So. I think that this is uh, an achievement uh, and something that allows me also to live my relationships uh, like a surplus, like something that really enrich, enriches me and not uh, uh, as a need. I mean, I don't look for uh, my boyfriend or for uh, uh, my friends because I am in need of attention or uh, of uh, meaning for myself. Right. That, uh, as far as I am uh, able to feel uh, more or less fine with myself, uh, also the others is something that I can really respect and I can uh, deeply and genuinely love. Thank you, Valeria. Are. I think uh, that this is, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, on the other hand, uh, uh, concerning more specifically my work, uh, as I as far as uh, my research uh, can be useful to overcoming uh, stigma, to uh, understand the diversity in all of its uh, shapes, uh, uh, for me it's a huge achievement. And also, in I, I remember one, one episode, I was in Paris for a conference and at the end uh, a person approached me and he was uh, a guy with uh, the diagnosis of high functioning autism and he told me that uh, thanks to my words he felt uh, less pathologized 
That's beautiful. That's and for me, this has been better of winning a grant, you know. So you know, <laughs> yeah. through, through a paper of mine, I can make feel better. Only one person in the world, this is what makes me feel valued. And this is also what makes me proud of being a philosopher because uh, we are usually, you know, considered like uh, people who just think about uh, random and uncomprehensible stuff. But yes. uh, no, it's not yeah. like that. Yeah. Thank you, Valeria. I really love this answer here because personally, I mean, I have plenty of students who, you know, have to face the choice about their lives. So what do I do after college? Uh, should I pursue uh, something that allows me to financially survive or should I pursue my vocation, even if it feels so weird, so personal, so impossible to pursue? And uh, yeah, it's challenging for me because uh, as a philosopher, I more or less did what you did. I mean, in the end, I decided to remain loyal to myself and uh, I find that this can sustain uh, a life, you know, a life of work, of sacrifices, of efforts, uh, remaining loyal to your vocation. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes I see some of my students uh, who go through paths that are clearly um, made to sustain themselves financially. And after a while, uh, they might go through, you know, nervous meltdown because of the amount of work, the schism between their own vocation and the life they are going through. So, I don't know, I feel like reiterating the idea that being loyal to yourself with some good luck can also lead to financial, economic sustainability. I mean, it's not impossible to achieve. It's more adventurous. Maybe you need to be up for a little more adventure, but why not? I mean, life needs to be fun. Look, I would like to, to leave you with one last question, which is the more or less the essence of this uh, meeting today. What do you think is the meaning of life? <laughs> How could you, from this yeah. point in life, uh, the Valeria that is uh, here now uh, in this point in life, uh, how would you summarize? Well, uh, yeah, uh, it mean, for me, it means to be able to be loyal, to, to remain loyal to oneself, but at the same time, uh, extremely open to the other. Mm, so this, this tension. How can we be open to the other? Well, uh, by listening to them, by listening to them and by... Uh, respecting and trying to understand the, the, the different uh, ways we have to express ourselves and our different uh, fragilities. So we listen when we take time to understand uh, and uh, see the fragilities, the vulnerabilities in ourselves and the others, so you think? Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, what I think uh, that I learned uh, both thanks to my studies, but also thanks to personal experiences, uh, is that uh, uh, interpersonal life is quite uh, nuanced and quite uh, complex. And uh, sometimes uh, we can find uh, uh, the richness uh, uh, of interpersonality, of intersubjectivity indeed in its complexity so yeah. also in front of a very difficult situation of uh, or or in anomalous situation we can find uh, a wonderful uh, other a wonderful experience uh, and uh, yeah yeah that's beautiful. I mean, each difficulty is an opportunity. It's com each complexity brings uh, some kind of uh, richness that uh, we can discover. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for Valeria no, for this you. beautiful, beautiful interview, and uh, I'm very happy you opened up uh, with us today. Thank you so much. This podcast was funded by the Faculty Support Grant at CSU East Bay. Follow our social media accounts for episode updates, highlights, and other behind-the-scenes materials.